Let me explain something about clapping. <laughs> clapping can be helpful. Clapping can also be hurtful. If you can't clap, please don't. If you can't keep the beat, keep your hands at your sides. We're laughing, but I'm not. Second Timothy chapter 3 this morning. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned. I would suggest you circle those words. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father God, we're so thankful for your word today. We're thankful that it is all inspired of God. Whether or not it is accepted by the world or not does not change the fact that it is inspired by God. Every word of it, from Genesis to Revelation. And so we accept it this morning. And I pray as we study it and open it and think about it today that you'll speak to hearts. Lord, I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit today. I pray that you would protect me from saying anything I ought not. Lord, there's a part of me, I confess, a fleshly part of me that would just like to froth at the mouth this morning. And I pray you'll help me with that. But I pray, Lord, also that you'll help me to say what needs to be said. And I pray also that you'll help us all to be filled with the spirit that we might hear, that we might learn, that we might think through these things. And that, Lord, we might be ready to respond. So help us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had planned this morning to preach out of Romans chapter 6, which is where we were coming to in our in our series in, uh, in Romans. We've been in it for several weeks now. And... and uh, I just, uh, I just, I made a, I made a change there. We were going to be in chapter six, verse number one. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And it is a good question, and it is one that we need to talk about. But we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. Next week we have a missionary, and then we'll get back to it then. 
but I was struggling with that sermon anyway. I was having great difficulty getting my mind around Romans chapter 6 and figuring out how to bring that together into a sermon, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes sermon preparation is like giving birth, and sometimes it's a, a hard birth, and sometimes labor lasts long. And yesterday I was, uh, I was really struggling with that, and finally in despair, I got on my motorcycle and took off down the road, and I was riding down the road on the bike in one of the few moments of non-rain that we had yesterday. And I took off for that motorcycle ride. And it was during that ride that I saw it. It was an American flag that was displayed in somebody's yard. These people had erected this really nice flagpole in their yard. And I like flagpoles. I'd like for us to have a flagpole here someday. I like flagpoles. On that flag, on that pole, they had hung a flag. And as I rode down the road toward it, I could see that flag fluttering in the wind. But as I drew near, I could see something else. I could see that that flag, that, that beautiful flag, the 50 white stars against the dark blue background and the 13 red and white stripes, it was tattered. You know how they get when the wind tears them to pieces. And it was tattered. And the ends of it had frayed in the wind and the individual stripes were coming apart and it was just tattered and separated and flapping sadly in the breeze as I got close. And I could not help but think as I drove closer and closer to that. What an appropriate symbol it is for what America has become. This past week, of course you all know, the Supreme Court of the United States decided to ignore God and decided to ignore Christians, decided to ignore the Bible, everything that we're founded on as a nation. This past week, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that they have the right and the ability to define truth And basically to overturn what God has said from the beginning of creation. And this past week, if there's anyone in here that was under a rock and didn't hear this news, this past week the Supreme Court decided that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it's right. It just means they declared it was legal. But nonetheless, they did it. I seldom touch on politics from this pulpit. And I make that choice not because I fear to speak about politics. I make that choice simply because normally I believe that my role as a pastor is to proclaim the word of God to you. It's not to preach politics. And if I'm busy proclaiming the word of God, that's enough. That keeps me busy. That's my primary purpose. But there are times when a pastor must take the position of the fictional pastor in the movie The Patriots. Remember that movie? When the pastor said sometimes the pastor must feed the flock, feed the sheep. Other times he must fight off the wolves. And so I think this morning that we need to talk about some of these things. Now, I know that there are those who will loudly proclaim from their self-appointed position behind the television camera that they have the right to say anything they want to about this kind of thing, but we preachers of the gospel have to be silent. We're not allowed to talk about this. You know what I think about that? It's hogwash. It's garbage. It's idiocy. Is that clear enough? I think that a pastor of the gospel has every right to speak about these sorts of things. As a matter of fact, I think that when a pastor is God called, and I believe that I am, I believe we have a responsibility sometimes to stand and uh, speak the truth against their backdrop of lies. All these thoughts, believe it or not, were swirling through my mind yesterday as I rode down the road on my motorcycle and looked at that tattering flag fluttering against the dark clouds of the wind. I had written 
some thoughts on a blog posting on Friday. Some of you subscribe to the church blog, and so you may have seen that. And so some of this this morning is going to seem very repetitious because I've taken it from those same thoughts. But uh, many, many of you, probably most of you, don't subscribe to that blog, and so you may not have seen this. And I want to share it with everyone in the church. I want to share this morning two thoughts. Number one, why I believe that what happened on Friday was a sad day for America. And number two, why I believe that what happened on Friday was, in many ways, a glad day for Christians in America. And that last point might seem strange to you, but hopefully it won't once we get to it. Let's think, first of all, about why I believe it's a sad day for America. You know, it's been true for a while now, hasn't it? Uh, we've all known this for a while, that America as a Christian country <laughs> no longer exists. I mean, we have thought for some time now that uh, America was no longer even marginally a Christian nation. That doesn't mean there's not Christians. I mean, churches are full this morning all over this land. But as a nation, as a, as a, as a public entity, it is, it is no longer a Christian nation. But it has never been more clearly confirmed than it was this past Friday, has it? When the highest court in the land said it plainly. And, you know, I don't know about you, but that confirmation makes me sad. Doesn't it make you sad? It brings a profound sense of sadness, I think, to those of us who love our country and who weep over its downward spiral. You know, one time we were, we were declared one nation under God. It still says that some places. One nation under God. But you know what I think we find ourselves living in now? I don't think we find ourselves living in one nation under God. I think we find ourselves living in basically the same situation that is described in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. There was no king in Israel, the book of Judges says. And so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the land in which we live today. A land where there is no king, there is no God, and every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And you know, I think, I think if you're a student of history, I think you know, I think you have read, I think anybody who is a student of history knows that no nation can long survive that way. That when we turn our back on God, we become weak. Without the protection, without the oversight of God, any nation gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And I believe that the foes of this nation are circling even as we speak because of the fact that they see we are getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Sodom and Gomorrah are but two examples of places where God's rule was supplanted by man's rule. And it was to man's destruction. I have mentioned several times of the of the things that I have seen and experienced in in visits to the Holy Land. And, uh, you know, the Holy Land is a life changing trip. I don't know if I'll ever go back there again, but if I do, I would encourage folks to go with me because the fact is it forever colors and alters your perception of Scripture. You cannot read the Bible the same way after standing in Israel and seeing with your eyes the things that you're reading about. It, It just changes your life. You can't you can't do it. The first time I visited that land, I rode the cable car all the way up to the top of the Fortress Mountain, Masada. I've done it every time I was there. It's one of the places they always take you. But I've never gotten over that first time. Because from the dizzying height of Masada, you are looking straight down, way down, to the southernmost tip of the Dead Sea. And that is the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you're standing there, you're looking, you're looking really at the, uh, the place described in Genesis chapter 13, where it says, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. 
But as you stand atop Masada, that is not what you see. You are not looking down on a well-watered plain. It is not like the, uh, it's not like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. It certainly doesn't look like the garden of the Lord. It's not a place that Lot or anybody else would look at and say, now that's the kind of place I want to live. Lush, green, beautiful. That's not what you see. You see desert. You see nothing living. It is the most starkly dead place on the face of the earth. It is not for nothing that it's called the Dead Sea. Nothing lives there. Not even bacteria. Nothing. It is dead. And it is that way because of sin. Those cities had become so depraved and so against God and His way that He sent two angels to destroy the cities. And those two angels came, and after surveying the cities, they told Lot, we will destroy this place. Because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And later in that chapter, we read that the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. I never really thought about that phrase right there until I was thinking in preparation of this about how dead that is. Even what grew on the ground so that it would never grow again. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. (coughs) It's the result of that judgment of God that you see as you stand atop Masada and you look down at what once was such a well-watered plain. The book of Judges. The Old Testament book of Judges did describe how every man did that which was right in his own eyes, but it didn't do it to glorify it. It did it to point out how it doesn't work. It never works. It always just brings distress and anarchy and bloodshed and immorality. And that's what took place throughout the book of Judges. Time and time and time again, the people would turn against God. They would drift further and further away from God until the judgment of God fell. And then in their distress, they would turn back to him. And then they would drift away. And then they would turn back. And then they would drift away. And then they would turn back. And the book of Judges is clear that man's way brings destruction and only in turning to God is there hope and peace. But what happened last week? What happened last week was that our Supreme Court decided that God's way doesn't matter. They decided that in their minds there is no God, no king, and they will each do what is right in their own eyes. And so I I believe it is a sad day for America. As we think about what history tells us about that kind of a decision and what it means, what it always means, what the Bible tells us about that kind of a decision, what it always means. For several weeks now, we've been studying Paul's epistles to the Romans. And you may remember Romans chapter one that talked about the downward slide, what happens when sin rules. And how it's just a downward, downward, downward progression, a downward slide resulting in nothing and good until finally the judgment of God. And so I do think this is a sad day for America because I do think it confirms something that we already knew. And that is that we live in a nation where we're no longer one nation under God. We knew that. But nonetheless, it's not fun to see it confirmed, is it? A sad day for America. But, but. I believe also that it is in many ways a glad day for Christians. A glad day for the church of Jesus Christ. A glad day for believers. 
And you're all looking at me like I'm completely crazy. And you're all thinking, how in the world could it be? How could it be a glad day? But I think it is. And let me just share a few different reasons why I think it could be a good day for the church. Uh, And you'll probably think of some more, but these are just some that came to my mind. Number one, I believe the church will be sifted and therefore strengthened. The church will be sifted and therefore strengthened. Now, I I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm going to say it as simply as I can. Only fools believe that the Supreme Court decision will have no effect on churches. Only fools. And now, if if you believe that, I'm, I'm trying hard not to call you a fool, but... Only fools believe that. The fact is, those five who stood there and said, this will have no effect on pastors and no effect on churches, are lying. They're either deceived themselves or they're openly lying. The same thing has been said in other places. Ireland, for example, where similar legislation has taken place. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was in the news about a faithful pastor who stood in the pulpit and preached simply, and his, it's, it's on the Internet, his sermon is on the Internet, you can listen to it, they're not distorting anything, uh, he simply was preaching the Bible about what it says about homosexuality, and they immediately descended upon him and charged him with a hate crime. That day is upon us here. Don't be deceived. The decision by the Supreme Court will affect every church, it will affect every Christian, it will affect every pastor, and we will have to decide whether we will conform to the gods of this world, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, or to the God of all lands when it comes to marriage. It's not just about marriage. This decision wasn't just about marriage. But that's the main thing they talked about. Here's what God says about marriage. God says the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One man, one woman. Married. That's what God says about it. From the beginning of creation. It's not the, the, uh, the teaching of a particular religion. It is God's declaration from the beginning of time. Now, here's the Supreme Court. They say just the opposite. They say men can marry men. They say women can marry women. And I don't want to belabor the point too much this morning, but it's pretty obvious the two positions cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. If God is right, then the Supreme Court is wrong. And I would say to you this morning that the Supreme Court is wrong. Franklin Graham, who I admire greatly, posted a comment about the ruling from the Supreme Court. And he began his remarks with this with this phrase. He said, with all due respect to the court. And as I read that, it stuck in my craw because I thought to myself, I have zero respect for the court in this particular case. I respect the institution. But this 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 in this matter, they are wrong. They do not define truth. God defines truth always, and there are no exceptions to that. Now, some Christians in some churches are going to follow the Supreme Court, and they're going to be revealed as the terrors that they have always been. And some Christians in some churches are going to follow the God of the Bible, and they're going to be revealed ever more clearly and ever more strongly and ever more purely as the wheat that they have always been. And the result is going to be a stronger and a purer and a more righteous church. It's probably going to be at the cost of some persecution, but nonetheless, that will be the result. 
You know, in the earliest days of the church, the rulers of the land did what our rulers are doing now. We can read about it in Acts chapter 12. Acts 12, 1 says, About that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And if you read Acts chapter 12, you find Herod was trying to stamp out Christianity in its infancy by silencing those who were preaching the gospel. And make no mistake, nothing that happened this past week is simply about marriage. It's entirely about silencing the gospel. It's entirely about removing God so that people can live any way they want. And that's what Herod was trying to do. Herod wanted to silence the gospel, but God was greater than Herod, and he is greater than those who would try to silence it today. God intervened. And we come to the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 12 and verse 24, and we read, But the word of God grew and multiplied. He tried to stamp it out. But the only result was that it grew and it multiplied. And the same will be true of the events of this past week. The word of God will prevail. It will not be bound by the opinions of five foolish individuals. It will go forth. Jesus' promise, I will build my church, will be fulfilled. And the church, though sifted and polished by the experiences to come, will be stronger. And it will be better. And it will be more glorious. And so I suggest that anything that contributes to that to the purity of the church, to the success of the church, to the growth of the church. That's a glad thing. It's a glad thing. Number two, I believe it's also possibly a glad day because the opportunities for Christians to witness will increase. The opportunities for Christians to witness will increase. You know, a couple weeks ago, a crazy, deranged gunman walked into a church in South Carolina. I'm sure you probably read about this. And he killed a bunch of people. And it was a bad story. The Christians who suffered such a devastating loss were very shortly thereafter uh, seen on, on, on news you know, interviews and things like that. And, and they were seen publicly offering forgiveness to this person who had brought such pain into their life. And the world was stunned. The world was stunned. How could that be the response? And the world is always stunned when the love of Christ is shown against the dark backdrop of this deadened world. It's always stunned. And I think as the agenda of the same-sex crowd continues to move toward its ultimate goal of removing God entirely from their lives in this world, the church will continue to proclaim that love. And they will continue to proclaim the love of God, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, and the hope that only the gospel brings. And they'll have more and more opportunity to do it. Jesus could not be hid when he walked on this earth. And he cannot be hid now. And the gospel will go forth. His gospel message, the darker it gets, the brighter it will shine. Paul reminded Timothy, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul's gospel was so heinous to the people of his day that it caused riots. There was a day when there was a huge riot that broke out. The city of Jerusalem rose up against him and would have killed him, but for the intervention of some Roman soldiers who grabbed him and were literally carrying him away to try to protect him from them. And I absolutely love Paul's response as those soldiers are trying to carry him away from that mob. My Bible says that Paul, as he was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And the commander replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew. 
from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them. And he keep reading. And he said he preached the gospel to them. He preached the gospel. And no matter how dark it gets, the gospel will continue to go forth. And as the mobs that want nothing to do with the message press harder and harder to silence it, they will bring increasing opportunities to witness. We've read it many times. God's word never, God's word never goes forth void. It always accomplishes the purposes for which he sent it. It never, not a single jot or tittle of it will ever perish from this earth. And I suggest that anything that contributes to the preaching of the gospel, anything that contributes to God's people gossiping his word, anything, any backdrop that makes the glorious hope of salvation in Jesus Christ stand out in ever greater contrast, it's a good thing. It's a glad thing. Did you hear Paul's words to Timothy? He said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to the gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of change. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Number three, one last reason I believe this is a glad day. I believe it reminds us that the church will be raptured soon. The church will be raptured soon, so soon now. You know, I believe very, very firmly that the United States of America is nowhere mentioned in the biblical end-time narratives. Now, perhaps you have some book on your shelf that says differently. If you do, throw it away. It's junk. The United States is nowhere mentioned in the end-time narratives. And how can that be? How can that be? The end-time narratives are describing a worldwide conflict. The greatest nation on earth not involved? How can that be? Well, I think there's a very simple explanation. Because the quote-unquote greatest nation on earth is no longer around. I think that's what must be the case. I think either by the time those narratives are, are, are coming to, uh, to fruition, I think either the United States is gone or it has at least slid into such irrelevancy that it doesn't matter. And we're watching that. And so as we sorrow over the destruction of America and as we watch its once so great uh, status disappear before our eyes and as we listen ashamedly, and I don't know about you, but it, it, it does bring me shame to hear our leaders speak the way they speak. We need to realize we're seeing something happen that has to happen. America must decrease if the biblical prophecies are correct. And they are. Make no mistake, America's decline into irrelevancy on the world stage reminds us the rapture is just around the corner. You cannot pray even so come Lord Jesus without recognizing that it's going to come at a cost. The return of Jesus Christ means, if the Bible is true, the decline of the United States of America. And so though it pains us and hurts us and breaks our hearts to watch the land of the free and the home of the brave slip slowly down, it also causes us to rejoice in the nearness of the rapture. Jesus is coming soon. And that ought to make us glad. There may be other reasons. You might be able to think of some. Reasons to consider this sad day for America a glad day for Christians. But I'm going to stop with those three. You can read your Bibles, and I'll bet you you'll come up with some more. But I want to do one last thing before we close this morning. And that's why I want to, I want to close with some practical application. I want to ask one final question, and that is this. What should we do? What should we do 
what should I do? What should you do? What should Christians do in light of the decision that was made by this godless Supreme Court ruling? And I, I mentioned four things in that blog posting on Friday, and I'll just mention them again today and we'll be done. Number one, keep praying. Number one, keep praying for America. It seems too late, doesn't it? It seems like the ship has sailed. It seems like there's no point in praying for the United States of America anymore. But, but that is not true. We know that nothing is too hard for our God. And we also know that we're told in Scripture to pray for our country. We're told to pray for our leaders. First Timothy chapter 2 says, uh, First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We still must pray. We don't know when God is coming back. We don't know when the return of Christ is going to take place. It does seem like it's imminent, but it may be a ways off. And we don't know what God is going to do with the United States of America. And so what does he tell us to do? Pray. Pray. Keep praying. Never quit praying. Number two, we need to continue to stand for the truth. The Supreme Court doesn't define what is right. God does. The Supreme Court does not have the final say. God does. And so we need to continue to stand on God's word. Order your life around it, just as you always have. Just because they say something doesn't mean it changes what's right. It doesn't mean it changes how we live. Determine what's right and wrong by what the word says and not by any other means. And it may be hard sometimes. When the whole world is laughing at it, when their whole world is saying it's ridiculous. But remember what Paul told Timothy. He said that you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so we must stand. And having done all stand. Number three, we need to keep loving people to Jesus. Keep loving people to Jesus. There will be increased opportunity to show those confused by same sex error that Jesus loves them. And we love them. You know, it's the height of stupidity to think just because you disagree with somebody's position that it's a sign you don't care about them. Sometimes the very fact you do disagree is an indication you do care. You disagree because you know they're wrong. And you know that there's an answer. And you know there's help. Disagreement is often a result of concern and love. And I think we're going to find increased opportunities to prove that and to demonstrate that. We need to stand unblinkingly against error. We need also to love unendingly those for whom Christ died. So keep loving people to Jesus. And finally, number four, what do we do? Look up and watch the clouds. There are endless headlines these past few days declaring victory for those who don't want God in their lives. But my brothers and sisters, the real victory is just around the bend. Jesus is coming soon. And I don't know about you, but I've read the end of the book. Have you read the end of the book? You know what it says? It says we win. It says Jesus has already won the victory. Jesus said one day, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so let us look up.